0: Saludos, I'm Kimberly Hayes de Muga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you're you're listening to Season 2 of the
1: Fundraising Heyday Podcast. We are a dynamic duo, one of whom is clearly more bilingual than I ever thought to be. But we're bringing (laughs) you insight and knowledge into the ever-evolving world of grants, development, and fundraising. Full disclosure, we are Southern. Mm -hmm. You may hear a y'all. It happens. That's
0: right. This podcast is brought to you by Season 2 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, and grant mock review. Visit their website www.dhleonardconsulting.com to learn more.
1: Today's episode is part two of our interview with Edgar Villanueva, author of Decolonizing Wealth. If you missed the first part, go ahead and pause this recording,
0: take a listen, and then come on back. It's okay. We'll wait. We will. And for today, we are picking up right where we left off. Edgar kindly joined us via Skype in his beautiful backyard in Brooklyn. So let's take a listen. So when you mentioned earlier before um, we went off into intermediary um, funding land, you were talking a little bit about the the example that that the very insular or what can be the very insular world of um, even private foundations or corporate foundations or whatever type where you you are sitting there and issuing grants. And something that, that we feel as grant seekers is, uh, what are what are ways that we can actually sort of bridge that gap and have discussions as grant seekers? In the past, it's been more of a, you know, don't come behind the wall. We don't we, the grant makers don't want to be overwhelmed by you, the grant seekers. But I know that grant makers need to give grants, and then of course grant seekers need to get grants. So it seems like there should be a, a more of a natural fit. So something that Amanda and I have really been pondering either through this podcast or our work as consultants or trainers is what can we do to start meaningful conversations with foundations and we want to do our part but we would love to hear your opinions as to how we could as again as grant seekers or consultants start meaningful conversations
2: yeah, you know it's 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 tricky and complicated at some yep. level. Um, I will say one of the challenges is that many foundations are really understaffed. and And so uh, this right. is one thing that a lot of nonprofits don't realize. So not to defend foundations of their behavior because there are definitely things that uh, they could do differently, and we can talk about that all day. Mm-hmm. Um, but often folks don't understand that within a foundation there may be one program officer who has a, a portfolio of you know, maybe even like 200 organizations that sure. are active grantees. And so these are organizations that are calling upon that person all the time and and involving that person. So the capacity to actually build deep relationships with even those grantees is challenging, much less to be open to, uh, you know, building new relationships. So, I think out of survival, in some ways, uh, foundations have created a process to get to know really quick and to keep keep a barrier there. Sure. Um, and that's something that I've been pushing on foundations that, yes, I think the priority should absolutely be about getting money into the community. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also need to think about what infrastructure might we need, you know, um, to, to actually be able to do that in a way that is, is in the right type of relationship with community and doesn't perpetuate those, those uh, terrible power dynamics. And, you know, there's this, there's like, uh, I remember just working in one foundation where we just constantly grappled over that admin percentage of our budget that we had needed to stay under in order to uh, feel good about ourselves. Mm-hmm. When we had like, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank, <laughs> And so that was not going to community, it was just being tied up in investment. And so I used to ask myself, are we more concerned with like making more money and becoming richer or burning out this staff? Um, Because we just, you know, (laughs) really need more internal capacity. So that's, that's not the burden of nonprofits. That's something as an insider in this industry that I'm having conversations with foundations about. Um, We, some foundations have gotten better about providing that general operating support and that overhead support, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, but neglect its own internal capacity. What I think that nonprofits and fundraisers can do, um, you know, I I love, I'm glad that you all mentioned um, Vu earlier, and I I love some of the work that he's coordinating and Mm -hmm. and, and leading around really thinking uh, how do we change and shift the fundraising Sector to be more focused on community demand and not bend to the will of these foundations. And I'm so inspired by the recent stories of nonprofits who have actually refused money from certain donors because of how that money was made. True, true. And I know that that is like a really hard thing to do. It's a really hard thing thing to do as a nonprofit when you've got payroll and all of these expenses, but. If we um, can find a way to be bold enough to, uh, to, you know, be, to, to not bend and cave in and, and la- allow our missions to creep to, to the power of foundations, um, I've always kind of believed uh, in my heart and um, that if we stick to our mission, we are accountable to our community, uh, we are gonna find the right donors that are a match for that, who will not force their will upon us. Um, but again, I know it's super hard. I ran a nonprofit. And mm-hmm. but funny enough, the nonprofit I ran, uh, my primary funder was the funder from the foundation that I left from. So you talk about crazy power dynamics wow. there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the relationship between a fundraiser and, a, and a, a program officer or whoever, mm-hmm. um, there's such an opportunity there to really educate and bring foundations along. And I see now that I'm in a position where I'm also fundraising, because as SHOT I make grants, but I have to raise that money to make the grants. Sure. I see it as every conversation as an opportunity to politicize, to educate, to engage and bring people around uh, to my way of thinking about the solution um, and the solutions that we know work um, at the Shot Foundation, and that takes you know building trust, but also being a little bit bold sometimes to say, mm-hmm. you know what, um, we don't want to call it that because that's not what the community calls it. Like that's a term you made up. Like what is that? <laughs> like yeah, what is student-centered learning? Like I don't even know what that means. Like no one yeah. that I know in the community calls learning student-centered learning. But, it's just learning. You know, maybe it's, <laughs> right. Exactly. Sorry. So um, it's, you know, I think it's, uh, we have to, I'm just really encouraging folks to be bolder than they've ever been. We're in a moment now where more and more people are speaking truth to power in the sector. And, um, you know, and it, sometimes it may cost us a grant or two um, to, to kind of be bold and to stick with our guns, you know, um, so to speak with what we're all about but we have to remember why we do this work and who we do this work for. And ultimately, mm-hmm. as a nonprofit organization, we are accountable to the public and to our um, constituents and not to philanthropy. Um, and so that is, you know, I, I've, been, I've been inspired before when, um, as a funder, I've called upon a nonprofit, even someone that we're funding, and I've made an ask of them like, hey, can you come speak on this panel or whatever? And they tell me, no, like, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. And I'm like, wow, I was told it kind of like intrigues me because it's like, (laughs) you know, or another group that I've met with who was like, you know, made me feel like I'm just left out if I'm not funding what they're funding, because it is just the way. And it's, it's, you know, it's the hot thing to be doing. And they're having change, although it doesn't align with my strategy it's i'm gonna i want to find a way to fund it because they are just so passionate about it and they don't come into the room in a way that's like you know um, begging me for money but like i feel like they're more powerful than me and i need to find a way to fund them so it's 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 really um sometimes about that countenance and that confidence about what you're doing and knowing that it works and knowing that your community is behind you and if someone doesn't want to fund you then somebody else will you know it's it's like dating yeah. <laughs> you have a bad date you might really like the person and you might think it's going to work out but and if they're, they're just not that into you yeah. <laughs> maybe they're not into you and, and, and move on and there will be some other donor out there that's going to think that you're fantastic and will want to fund you.
0: We're we're laughing because there was a podcast where I went off on a tangent and I was like, it's like Tinder, only not. And let me talk to you about that. Like I'm such the authority. But, um, and Amanda got that like, oh, where are we going? Yeah, sometimes it really scares me across the mic. I'm like, oh, are we going to have to cut this later? Dangerous nah. territory. Dangerous yeah. territory. When, when you were mentioning the, the panels, it just brought to mind um, something that we had done for – years as a part of our uh, regional uh, grant chapter that we'll talk about a minute, but we would have meet the funder panels, you know, where we would have scripted questions and I I, I would moderate, but I can also see getting back to where you were mentioning that a lot of foundations are really understaffed and that is another level of stress for them. I have to say it was like we had to set ground rules like, hey, write your questions down, all the grant seekers in the room, and we will uh, read them out, and they'll respond, and then when the panels were over, it was like trying to get a rock star or a really hot <laughs> political candidate out. It's like, go, 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 go out the side yeah. door. Here they come. And we even had to say, I even had to joke about, Hey, you know, they're here to answer questions, but after they're done, please don't follow them into the,
2: the restroom.
0: restroom. <laughs> and that um, literally
2: happened to me. <laughs>
0: no, I, oh, sure. <laughs> see, see, my instincts were right. So I also want to say it's not, we get that that is not the way, but we just need to find another way. And I'm so sorry. Someone followed you into the the bathroom to pitch you about their. <laughs> That's so. I was just on behalf of grant seekers everywhere. That is wrong. Y'all do not do that. That is wrong. Well, it may. I get that
1: because, I mean, we have seen it firsthand, but I I will tell you, both both Kimberly and I, we sit on the board of the Grant Professionals Association, which is a large membership and professional Mm -hmm. development network for grant writers and fundraisers and and the like. Um, And one of the things we struggle with is we have no problems attracting grant seekers to our conferences, but we know we feel very strongly that the only way everything's going to get better is if the funders and the seekers do start having some intimate conversations mm-hmm. um, but, but every time we try to invite somebody to that they look at it in that way that yep. oh so all of y'all can bombard me with your ideas and ask about my money and and so it's it, also not any...
0: it's also not their money but I'm just yes. going to step away yes. from that but it's just mm-hmm. do you
1: have you know having conversations with folks like you is definitely we we're, we were so excited you could talk with us this is a step in the right direction but any suggestions for how we can start helping to bridge that gap
0: as an association, yes. not just as, as a bunch of hungry grant seekers looking for money, but what are right. some things, what are? I is there a way where,
1: we can pitch it? Like in yes. the long run, this is going to get you better proposals and better projects. If there's a better understanding between what you guys want and are doing versus what we are pitching to
2: you, I guess or the
0: realities of what's going on out in the communities that you want to That's serve. That's true
2: absolutely yeah you know so that dynamic that happens is a it's a product of foundations um you know i blame foundations who created this game in the first place and then uh you know not being transparent not being clear and uh you know only us you know it's things are changing but i remember data um a few years ago maybe 10 years ago um, life is passing by quickly, but, um, like 12% of foundations had annual reports and there are so many foundations who don't even have websites. And so. You know, so there's this whole mystery that we've created around like what happens, or when we do get uh, people sent in proposals, they don't even hear back. You don't know if they even received it, it just goes into a black box. And so I think that, uh, you know, it is on us as uh, the funders to think of ways to be more transparent. And if we are understaffed, we can use technology or whatever to put more information out there. If you have a new RFP, make a video or do a webinar where you can talk to lots of people at one time about um, this RFP and like what people need to know about it, and then maybe you won't get like 500 phone calls about it. And so um, I do see that trend happening more and more. Um, but you know, part of I remember going to these types of events uh, in North Carolina. They started uh, this thing annually called a foundation fair. And it was very interesting. It was literally like uh, a career um, fair or something. But every foundation had a table and some like gymnasium in eastern North Carolina. And wow. people would just go table to table to table and you get a brochure and meet staff from the foundation. And that was like pretty interesting, you know, to me. And that's actually where I think someone followed me to the bathroom. But <laughs> Oh, um, that's unfortunate. It's also like, you know, I, I, I like those kind of ideas, but that felt a little antiquated because yeah. only a small percentage of people that I met in that foundation fair might be someone that we would potentially fund. But I think, you know, the intention is in the right place of getting funders out of the ivory tower and mm. into the community and being more accessible. I think that good spaces for that to happen Um Is 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 really coming together around solutions and community. So we have, you know, for example, an issue of homelessness. Let's bring those folks who are experts on that issue. Let's bring in people who are directly impacted by that issue, and let's bring in funders um, for a, you know, and and local government for a multi-sector conversation. And um, I've always said that um, funders will often show up for events if they think they're there because someone sees them as an expert, not because they have money. And so wow. we want to be asked to speak at thing. It's the weirdest thing. I'm like, clearly, everyone wants a grant, but we have to pretend, you know, like, oh, the grant just showed up out of nowhere. Know that,
0: <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs>
2: I just really wanted you, to, uh, since you don't work in this space, to, uh, but, the, but the truth is many program officers have many years of experience around different issue areas and may have some like to shine. And so that's um, that's one way. It, it's sort of, uh, you know, overwhelming for foundation staff to, it's, it's hard to say no. When someone corners you and they're just going on and on about a program, uh. you know, within the first five seconds, this is like they don't even live in the state that you fund in and like uh. trying to, you know, tie it off without uh, hurting someone's feelings or feeling like you're not, you don't care. Yeah, um, It's really hard. And I have been uh, yelled at before by someone who said that I, I didn't care Um about autistic children, because I worked at a a foundation that did not fund that. And it's like, no, I deeply care, but, uh, you know, how do I help? (laughs) Can I send you a personal check, you know? Um, So, uh, so yeah, I think, I think it's about really getting beyond the transaction. Um, And we're so transactional and, and, you know, as a sector, but if we can find ways to move beyond that and center community, center people, um, and, uh, in, in the space, um, and come together to really have that conversation. We can talk about the money and resources later, but, um, it's, it's hard because I think we have to be prepared on the funder side, but also nonprofits have to Mm -hmm. under, you know, no, like this is not, this is not the place to pitch. We're really coming together for a community conversation around an issue, um, but, yeah, there's there's some great efforts to, to really push for transparency and trust-based philanthropy in the sector that I hope uh, more and more. I feel like, personally, that uh, when I'm in at conferences and places these days, there's just as many um, nonprofits and activists in those spaces as there are funders, which I think is a good sign.
0: That is a really good sign. And I think… One of the things that came up when you were explaining that is something that Amanda and I are also passionate about in our field is is educating more and more grant seekers. It's like, hey, this you do need to build a relationship and have a conversation. This isn't an ATM situation. Yeah. Um, and so I think we can always push for more understanding too in our from our side of the desk, so to speak, as to how to go about this instead of cornering people in bathrooms and yelling maybe there are better you know ways although i've never I've never done that, and I'm shocked <laughs> that people do that. <laughs> Clearly, if people are doing it, it's because there's a misunderstanding about how to better work together. And some people right. just don't understand social norms. Okay, right. that's fair enough. Problem. I fair have enough. to
2: tell you. Uh, <laughs> do you remember that app that everyone was using a while back, uh, where you would like check in where you are? Bef- it was kind of like uh, before Facebook was doing it. It was. Foursquare. Was it Foursquare? Four Foursquare. Yeah. I remember I was in Raleigh, North Carolina, um, eating at a restaurant, and I checked into Foursquare because it was like the cool thing to do at the time.
0: Oh yes. Um.
2: A few minutes later, uh, people started coming to the restaurant that, uh, <gasps> okay. I guess, they're following me on four square. <laughs> oh, and, like, creepy. coming up to the table say, oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt your dinner. Oh. Um, and so, yeah, so it's <laughs> – which feels terrible. I'm like – it feels terrible that, that that's what people feel like they have to do to get access. And oh. so – Let's keep pushing on that. I think, uh, you know, we're all in this thing together. And
0: Oh, yeah. Um,
2: but, yeah, that's
0: that. Oh, well, that's some creepy grant stalking going <laughs> yeah, that, on right there.
2: I, I don't I think anyone sp- ever got a grant that way. Like, I would have. Like, surprising no, someone. I <laughs> would have straight
0: up been that person that would send you a Christmas card or something to your office. But yeah. I would not have ever. Oh, wow. That's okay. This is not a how to on how to stalk program officers. Everyone out there. No, Although, no. If it was Keanu Reeves,
1: Kimberly, you know, you'd be there at his table. Keanu Reeves. Oh the,
0: yeah. <laughs> I would totally respect his privacy. <laughs> Maybe. No, that's just, yeah, that's a whole different discussion. But anyway, uh, I'm sure, I don't think he uses Foursquare. Not on I do either. So. <laughs> yeah, there we go. It's um, over. <laughs>
1: it's, it's over. Done. Move on. Move on. Like, is it like my space? Oh, go let on. it go. Let it go. Um, Well, you mentioned earlier, you talked about, you know, when you first got into the field and just kind of when you're younger, there's just things you don't know. And there's things, even if you do know, you're afraid to speak up. And um, that's something Kimberly and I have talked about before how, you know, when you're even on the grant seeking side, things Mm -hmm. that I never would have thought to question from any funder, just because I had the attitude of, well, we need the money and we're not going to question it. And it's my job. If I don't get this money, I'll lose my job. Exactly. And so, but now I think part of it is just not only, being wiser as you get older and starting to realize some of these things but also listening to folks like you and vule and everybody who is starting to use their platform um you know through conference presentations and twitter and books and all Mm -hmm. these things to make people realize hey here's an issue that we need to fix Um, and of course plenty of people love it, but I'm sure there's also the inevitable naysayers, especially from those who are very traditional bound foundations mm-hmm, and funders. Mm-hmm. So have you had some issues having to deal with that? And if so, how how do you deal with that?
2: Yeah, great question. You know, it's been very limited. And I think uh, one reason, reason is that in philanthropy, we have a super nice culture. Like, <laughs> people do not publicly disagree and it's it's sort of this culture of like we're all we're all God's children doing God's work and you know and and so um, I have been uh, you know I, I'm very open to critique or criticism or pushback. Um, also, though, I think the way that I wrote my book and put my story out there is that this is my story. You can't deny that, you know, this this is my life and my personal That's experience true. in this work, so it's not really up for debate. Uh, but I, I will say that uh, the only uh, sort of pushback is that, you know, around the time that uh, Decolonizing Wealth came out, some other fantastic books came out, like Anand's book, Winners Take All. Take and all. so we, uh, we've been in this uh, season of uh, really sort of uh, speaking truth and, and calling out. Uh, and I think uh, there's been a little bit of pushback from that where. Um, some some folks who also have books out, uh, who I think want to you know get in the mix in a way, um, saying that we've gone too far with the critique of philanthropy. Um, one article said that our critique was going to stop people from giving, and um, that all you know all giving is good, and like we we just gone too far. And so, uh, you know, it's it's really interesting. I'm like um, the fact I was like, well, you're blaming me. It's we should be blaming Donald Trump that donations are down. It's the policies that he's behind, not not critique. And I come from a line of thinking that if you um, if you really love a person or you love a child or you love whatever, you're going to speak the truth and tell the truth about it. And ultimately, you know, my book is a love letter to this sector, and I still work in philanthropy I'm the only one who has put a book out in the last uh, year or two that is a critique of philanthropy that actually works at a foundation. And so um, for me, it's not about trying to shut down philanthropy or completely dismantle um, this system. But it is like, let's be honest, when we are having conversations at every conference about equity and diversity and inclusion, let's be honest about some of the dynamics that are really happening inside the sector and, um, you know, honey, it's time for intervention, right? That's because, right. Uh, you know, I can't um, pretend um, any longer um, with these surface conversations. I want to go deep because I do care um, about this sector and I do care about community um, and seeing change in the world. And so that is really the only, um, for for me, that type of argument is kind of like a hashtag all lives matter arg- um, argument towards the mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter movement. Right, it's right. Like, yes, all lives matter. Yes, all giving matters. All giving is good. And I encourage everyone to give to the causes and institutions that they love. But also we have to, uh, I'm talking about right now, um, giving to communities of color, which are being neglected and marginalized. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, it is a truth that I am trying to shine a spotlight on. If we're going to see change in the world, we cannot um, you know ignore communities that desperately need resources to do work uh, to close the race wealth gaps to close the gaps in uh, the opportunity gap in education and so forth and so on and so that's where that's the where the pushback has come and but you know again these are from folks uh, that critique are from folks who are uh, you know writers or, or you know putting out books of their own or whatever. I haven't personally felt that from people who are donors. I have met with, you name the wealthy name that a billionaire in this country, I've probably had, I've had meeting with them or with their staff. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like my critique has been welcomed um, by folks uh, who have a lot of wealth and are really thinking about, you know, what's going on in this country. And um, rethinking their roles and responsibilities as people with wealth to uh, really bring our country back together, which is being torn apart right now. So Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: I feel super supported um, by the sector, actually. Um, And even like outside of philanthropy, uh, this message has resonated with um, folks in corporate America and financial institutions and uh, so I, I think it's a, it's a very timely message of bringing us all together, finding a balance, um, and thinking about resources in a more equitable way so that we can all thrive in a mutual way.
0: So you can't see us, but we're gently swaying back and forth like we had little choir robes on. <laughs> and you're, and you're, and could, I looked over and Amanda was doing the same thing. I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, and it's, um, I was telling Kimberly after I had finished the book because she read it first and was talking to, you know, she was asking me my thoughts and, and what I thought about everything. And I said, you know, it's one of those things that yes, we are in the nonprofit sector, so we should read this, but it it made me think about things beyond just that sector, just kind of my whole life and my outlook on things. And I was telling her too, it was very fascinating to me. You know how sometimes you don't think about a certain topic or may not have heard about it before in your life really or heard about it in any sort of detail. And then all of a sudden you feel like you see it everywhere. And about the same week I'm reading your book, I was looking for a new podcast to listen to. And in the top 10 of the week was a podcast called This Land, um, mm. which is about um, in Oklahoma. There's It's actually a death death trial um, that's going to the Supreme Court, but really has more to do with basically, is there a big chunk of Oklahoma that doesn't belong to the state? It actually belongs to the indigenous people living there. And it's just between that and your book, it's just been a very much more eye opener than anything I've ever learned in school about how things started in our country and how, I mean, I know things were awful, but I don't know, just, I want to learn more about it. You have opened some eyes. (laughs) I love
2: that. And, you know, I I think that uh, I've heard that quite a bit from folks. And and part of what I'm sharing in the book is my own story. Mm -hmm. I'm actually Native American. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the actual history of our country or my own community because We are taught something quite different in schools and uh, things are kind of romanticized. And it's not about, uh, you know, folks have asked me, you know, Edgar, you're just trying to go around and make everyone feel terrible. Uh, It's not about that at all. Uh, You know, I am uh, so... thankful to be living in a, you know, uh, in in the 21st century in a diverse world. But I think that we have to understand our history as a country in a real way. Absolutely. And I think the racial tensions and all of this polarization that we experience now uh, is because we have, uh, you know, that hurt and that pain historically has been just bubbling under our surface as a country, and we have not come to terms with it. In order to truly heal and uh, have just kind of come together as one human race, we've got to have a process of, of truth and reconciliation that actually uh, you know, speaks to our history and gives place for folks who have been hurt by that history to be heard. Um, you know, I I share in, in the book uh, a story of uh, a woman who wrote a letter of apology to me on behalf of her ancestors mm-hmm. who um, owned slaves in North Carolina around Scotland County, which you guys will probably know where that is. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it's such a powerful experience because I wasn't looking for an apology or expecting an apology from anyone, but in that moment where this this woman who I barely knew wrote this letter and was taking some type of ownership of you know of because I have ownership of the trauma that's been passed down right. and the poverty and all those things that my family still struggling with it was just it's something that brought us together and now she's a really good friend of mine and I um, love that you know it just demonstrates that like we just need to we just want truth and we just want an apology and then that's mm-hmm. the best way to move forward toward uh a path of healing, it's it's really fascinating that we're talking about reparations and all of that in the news now, and it's uh, all in the democratic debates and whatever. And I'm very, very supportive of reparations. I think it's the right thing to do. There's models in other countries. But I don't want to so quickly jump to that as a solution without really doing that uncomfortable work of truth-telling and apologizing mm-hmm. and reconciliation before we jump to just the repair of throwing money because I mm-hmm. think that the underlying problems the, um, around race and, and power in this country will still be there, even after we move money, if we don't go to the source and kind of rip that Band-Aid off and deal with it for once and all.
0: So all. more like the reconciliation process that went on for years in South Africa.
2: Yeah, absolutely. In Canada, Germany's yeah. had a process.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, it, it all just goes back to to just the power of listening and of speaking your truth and of forgiveness and being, you yeah. know, being open to everybody. So you're totally speaking our love language oh, yes. Here. We're, we're feeling it.
0: <laughs> With, and um, I think either toward the end of your book or maybe on your website, I did note that The net proceeds from the sales of Decolonizing Wealth will help support the Generation Indigenous Fund. And I would just like to hear a little bit more about that fund and what it does.
2: Sure. So the Generation Indigenous Fund was started by um, an organization called Native Americans in Philanthropy, uh, where I have the honor of serving as the chair of the board of directors. And this was a fund that was started not long after Standing Rock um, many foundation partners that we have um, that are members of the organization wanted to support um, and respond to the the youth organizing and youth leadership that was happening around Standing Rock. And so we uh, created a mechanism to, to move money quickly because in some cases, uh, groups, uh, some of those groups don't have the official 501c3 status and they're too right. small. So back right. to the intermediary kind of conversation we were having. And so that is a fund now that we um, are making, uh, it it still lives on and folks Mm -hmm. can donate and foundations have made grants um, for us to support these native youth groups who are working across all types of issues from environmental uh, to uh, fighting against racist mascots in high schools and those types of things. So it's a beautiful program. Folks can go to decolonizingwealth.com to to learn more and even donate mm-hmm. through through the website. But okay. we are making uh, giving all of the proceeds from the book to that fund as well.
1: Very cool. Well, Edgar, thank you again for taking the time to join us today. Um, I'm a huge reader, and it's a treat to actually have the opportunity to ask the author the burning questions that books bring out in you. Um, I highlighted so many sections of your book, including this line. You said, storytelling, ideally spiced up with a bit of humor, is how we transmit wisdom. And um, I love that so much because that is mine and Kimberly's goal of this fundraising heyday podcast. So uh, thanks for – I really like that quote. So thanks for that.
2: Thank you.
0: And thanks again for sharing your insights, your stories with us. And um, we look forward to introducing your – book, Decolonizing Wealth, and your important work to others in our profession. Um, what is the best way for people to stay in touch with you and your work? I'm pretty sure it's not following you to the bathroom, so <laughs> just let people know. Or Foursquare. Or Foursquare.
2: I wear wigs when I'm out in public. <laughs> I'm a little incognito. Got just it. kidding. Um, <laughs> um, hey, you know, DecolonizingWealth.com, hey. Um, there we have a newsletter. Um, if you can subscribe on the website, um, we are. Um, you know, you can donate. You can find ways to get involved. We are at events all around the country, so that's a good good way to find out where we're going to be, and um, just keep in touch.
1: Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a real treat. We appreciate it. Thanks again.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, guys.
1: And that concludes our interview with Edgar. Is it weird to say that not only did I love chatting with him, but
0: I kind of think he enjoyed chatting with us, too. I'm sure you mean that (laughs) in a super professional way. Absolutely, And I actually concur. And he has actually retweeted some of the tweets that I put out there about his book. So I'm thinking he was uh, enjoying himself. And really, we want to get these ideas out there. And we want to do that. But we also want to have a good time while we're doing that. Because we're just that way. So I'm thinking it was mutually uh, an enjoyable interview.
1: It was another fundraising heyday podcast success. Oh, girl, yes. (laughs) Thank you again to our season two sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website, www.dhleonardconsulting.com to learn
0: more. So remember, there is no specific college degree here in grant writing or fundraising but there are a lot of good people with experience to share, training programs, and other ways to learn. We'd love for this podcast to be one of your favorite ways to learn. Please remember to subscribe to the Fundraising Heyday podcast
1: so you don't miss a single episode like our next one. We're talking about educating up. Oh, it's my favorite. Ah. Most grant professionals struggle with educating their bosses and boards and even their co-workers about the grant world. So you don't want to miss our insights, which you know are fabulous, and the knowledge all surrounding up. See you next time. Bye.